Hello, and welcome to another great message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. Thanks for joining us today. For notes and video related to this message, please visit www.parkviewchurch.org. Now I'm going to start with one of those name the picture. If you can tell me the person's name or what the occasion was, uh, you'll be the winner. So look at the picture. Does anybody recall what this picture is of? Anybody know the guy in the sweatshirt with the hat on, the little earphones? What's that guy's name? Yeah, Steve Bartman. Okay. So for those of you who might not remember the history behind it, it was a number of years ago. Uh, 2003 is on October 14th. And uh, the Cubs were in the National League, the race for the pennant. They were ahead three games to two in a seven-game series. And uh, so this, this, it was very, very exciting. It could have been, they've got four more outs, you know, and if they can get these four outs, uh, it's going to be the first time in the World Series since 1945. And so Louis Castillo, second baseman for the Marlins, hits a, a, a pop fly to left field. And uh, Moises Alou comes charging in from left field into the If he can just make this out, you know, just just finish this inning, one more inning, and they get to the World Series. And Steve Bartman sticks his glove out, you know, knocks the ball out, you know. And listen, they had to escort him from the stadium with security guards. Uh, the news media, for some reason, let his name and address get out to the public. And the, the police had to station and uh, protect him. Uh, there were so many threats on his life. You know, so whether you're a sports fanatic or a player or a politician or a student, people just don't tolerate second best. As a matter of fact, you've probably even seen the T-shirt, uh, second place equals first loser. Uh, people don't like second place. People don't like uh, mistakes and, and uh, people don't forgive very quickly. Uh, Steve Bartlett, e even to this day, it's very, very difficult for him even to show up in uh, Chicago. See, the world is as unforgiving and inflexible towards second best or failure as it is compromising toward morality. Isn't it funny how the world is? But what about God? What about God? Is God a God of a second chance? Is God a God of perhaps even a third chance? It reminds me of Psalm 103. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Or one of the greatest hymns ever written comes from Lamentations chapter 3. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So this is a very, very important topic we're about to hit today. So why don't I start with a word of prayer? So Father, many people are here this morning, probably even still wondering if they can truly be forgiven for what's gone on in the past. And many come to you worshiping, but, but down deep, they just continue to wrestle day after day, week after week, year after year, with a theological issue of divine forgiveness. So Lord, if you're really the God of second chances, would you communicate clearly to us today by the power of your Holy Spirit? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So we come to chapters 11 and 12, only next week we're going to 13. Doug will finish it with chapter 13 next week, so 11 and 12. So I'm going to do something unusual. If you start with chapter 11 and you go all the way through the middle of chapter 12, it's just a long, 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 long list of hundreds of names. I'm going to come back to those lists of names at the very end, because I do want to talk about the significance of these lists. A third of the book are just lists of names. But I want to start in the middle of chapter 12. Um, and talk about, start there. So here's the big question. When you look at Israel's history, they have gone through 500 years of disobedience. And we sort of went through the history uh, last, last week. We went through those uh, chapters, 9 and 10, which recite the entire history of Israel, just, and, and they just blow it, 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 time after time after time after time after time, 500 years of rebellion followed by 70 years of exile, and now there's only 52 days of faithfulness. Okay, 500 years of total blowing it, 70 years of exile, 52 days of faithfulness, is that enough for God to take them back? Does God take back offending children? Or will he make them do penance of some sort? Should he put them in some sort of purgatorial state? Let me ask you, what would you do if you were the deity and you were asked, and probably all of us have been in that position to have to grant forgiveness to somebody, but let's say this person does it over and over and over and over and over, and they'll say, oh, it'll never happen again. You turn around the next day, and it happens again, and over and over and over and over, and it never changes, never changes, never changes, never changes, never changes, and it goes on for 500 years, and you're the deity. What are you going to do? And now you have a, a less than two-month span of faithfulness. What are you going to do? You're the deity. What are you going to do? Does God take back offending children? And this is so important because I'll guarantee you every single one of us here have been in that position. Every single one of us have either been in that period of active rebellion or passive indifference. And if you haven't been, you will be soon. Every single one. Thousands of times I've seen people fall bankrupt morally, spiritually, and God takes them back. And we're going to see what needs to transpire. What happens? What's the process? So the big idea or the thesis of what I'm going to talk about today, it really it continues from chapter 8, is that when, when a, a person experiences real forgiveness and real renewal and restoration, you're going to see a couple of things take place. You're going to see brokenness, and you're going to see faithfulness. Now, again, this builds from chapter 8 on. You see it when they, where there's a return to the Word. There's that celebration returning to the Word. And then last week, as we looked at uh, chapters 9 and 10, we saw it builds upon this journey of brokenness, a return to the Word. Uh, chapter 8, uh, 9 and 10, you see confession, and you see resolve and you see repentance. And today you're going you're to see this brokenness continue with uh, this dedication, celebration, consecration, adoration, and then it will conclude with faithfulness. So, so let, let's look at this, how 
uh, what brokenness results in. And notice how it starts with this dedication. And that's verse 27. So we're starting right in the middle of 27 after the list of names. And at the dedication. So here it is, finally, we're at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem. They sought the Levites and all of the places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate this dedication. So after 500 years of rebellion, they finally had this dedication. And basically, dedication is just a commitment that everything is going to be different from this moment on. It's going to be different from this moment on. So when you have a dedication service of infants, basically the parents get up here and they say, okay, from this moment on, from this point on, this child is going to be raised according to the constraints and the directives of the Word of God. Or if couples get rededicated, basically they're saying, from this point on, we as a couple, as a husband, as a wife, are going to live according to the principles of God's Word. So dedication is not Let's get back on the cycle of sin, punishment, cry, forgiveness, sin, punishment, cry, forgiveness, sin, punishment, cry, forgiveness. It's not just the cycle of do it again, do it again, do it again. It's let's not try it again. Let's try it anew. Dedication. Try it anew. It's going to look very differently this time. Our past is finished. We're going to try it anew, not just try it again. Dedication. Celebration to celebrate the dedication with gladness and thanksgiving. And then it goes through the singing and the, the cymbals and the harps and the lyres, and you have singers, you have to, these choirs that come from all the different surrounding districts. And why? Why is there to be this celebration? Well, it's because we're going to find out later. It's exactly the way it was meant to be from the very beginning. Now, if you think about it, what was the most joyful celebration you've ever been a part of? The, the most joyful celebration. What, it, what was it? You know, I, I think back, and just personally in my own life, I think of our, of our wedding, uh, December 23rd, 1971, uh, 73, excuse me. Uh, <laughs> that's, that was my birthday when I became a Christian, December 31st, 1971. That was another joyous time of celebration. So marriage, celebration, those are wonderful times of celebration. Or for those of you who might be a Hawk fan, it might be when, when the Hawkeyes got to the Rose Bowl, you know, wonderful time of celebration. Uh, for others of you, it might be uh, November 2nd, 2016, bottom of the 10th inning in Cleveland uh, when the Cubs were playing. And uh, for the first time in 108 years, they win the World Series. There's a massive celebration uh, there. Those are fantastic. There are incredibly joyful times of celebration. But they don't compare with one thing that the Bible talks about that stands out in Scripture. In Scripture, the most joyful occasion for any human being is when he or she walks in obedience to God. That's where joy is at the apex of the mountain. When we walk in obedience to God, there is the height of joy. Now, contrasting to that, the greatest joy killer in all of life is manifested in self-will or self glory. So there's dedication, celebration. This, this whole journey of brokenness then leads to consecration, or you could write next to that the word purification. So the priests, the Levites, purified themselves, cleansed themselves, purified the people and the gates and the wall. 
So they sprinkle it with hyssop. They purify because the past is gone. We're finished with that. We're finished with the way it used to be. We're not just going to start again. We're going to start anew. It's going to be totally different. It reminds me of 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to katharizo, and to totally cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to consecrate. And then there's adoration, giving thanks to God. Nehemiah brings the leaders of Judah up onto the wall. So here are the leaders of Judah, the southern kingdom, are brought up onto the wall. The wall probably could fit three or four people abreast and, and appoints these choirs, two different choirs that are appointed to give thanks. And then you, you can read about it. I can't go through all the, I can't read every passage in these, in these two chapters, but you're going to read about it. Uh, these, during the day, these choirs march, and one goes north, one goes south, and they, they meet in the temple with this incredible celebration. And you think, why would Nehemiah do all that? Well, let me give you a few reasons I think he did this. Number one, uh, do you remember the first time Nehemiah rode around the wall? Remember that? It happened way back in chapter 2. Doug preached on it. It was in the middle of the night, remember? It was in the middle of the night, and the walls were all torn down in shambles. And bottom line, he wanted to go through at night because he, he didn't want people to be discouraged. But now they go around the wall in broad daylight. Uh, they're singing. There's trumpets. There's, it's led by these choirs. They're worshiping. They're praising God for what God has done. He wants us in broad daylight that God gets the glory and the praise. This is what God has done. So this is what unites them. And you remember uh, as well in chapter 3, and I covered chapter 3 a number of weeks ago, it was all the families were, were in their places and, and they had trowels and they had spears and... Um, and they were protecting their area for their family. And so this is something, he goes around the entire wall, uniting the entire uh, country, again, because of what God has done. And I love this, this, just a little caveat about Nehemiah. What an incredible leader. I mean, he just reinforces, look, guys, it's not me doing any of this. This is the Lord. So, and I love verse 43 where, where he says, um, I'm sorry, verse 38 and I follow them. So he appoints the choirs, and he follows the choirs. And, uh, and they, go, they go around, and, and Nehemiah's following, following the choirs. In other words, uh, Nehemiah lets the choir get the honor, because Nehemiah was saying, look, it's God who has done this incredible thing. And then in verse 43, there are great sacrifices that day. There's rejoicing, for God made them rejoice with great joy. Women and children rejoiced. The joy, and I'm going to come back to this phrase, the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. It's just, look what God has done. You know, it amazes me in athletics. You know, usually uh, players, after making a good play, you know, they'll, like if they run in for a touchdown, they'll quickly take off their helmet so the cameras will zoom in on them, you know, so they get the glory for it. Or you see it in basketball players all the time. They'll make this incredible bucket and they'll, they'll pose for the cameras and all that. And, and yet here it's, it's no, God, God gets the glory in all of this. So humanly speaking, worshiping and praising God is a very humbling and humiliating act. And it flows out of brokenness. See, it's got to start with a brokenness. It flows out of, worship flows out of brokenness. Praise 
flows out of brokenness. It's God who gets the glory, not ourselves. And this is, this is exactly what Jesus will demand from every Christ follower uh, later. He'll say this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it'll bear much fruit. And that's that picture. God is the one who gets the glory. And notice the results of all of that. The results of all of that. God getting the praise. Incredible joy. Verse 43. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. I love that phrase. Joy spreads to the whole world when we're broken and humbled to the point where we say it is God who gets the glory, not ourselves. That's where true joy is. That is when our testimony is the loudest. That's when our testimony spreads the farthest. It's when our, we get so caught up in the joy that God is the one getting glorified. Not something you've done or, or I've done or we as a church have done. It's God. And I'll tell you what, um, your joy in God will absolutely be your greatest sermon ever. And it is what will spread to the uttermost parts of the earth. Uh, for those of you who are a little bit familiar with church history, there's a guy. Some of you might even have this. Anybody have the Matthew Henry commentary? It's a commentary on the whole Bible. There were a few people in the first service. Okay, got, got a couple in here have that. It's a, he's a Puritan, okay? So he lived back in the late 1600s, died about 1714 or so, something like that. And he was probably one of the ones that was responsible for the first great awakening. And Matthew Henry used to say this to those young men he used to disciple. He would say, greatness is like a shadow. If you pursue greatness, if you pursue it, you'll never catch up with it. But if you run from it, it will follow you closely. I love that. Greatness is like a shadow. Oh, it's, it's up there. If you pursue it, you'll never catch up with it. If you run from it, it will follow you closely. Well, if you're going to run from greatness, what do you run to? What do you run toward? Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, brethren, by the mercies of God. He's saying, run to this to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but instead be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by, you know, catch this, that by testing, that by testing, you may discern what the will of the Lord is, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. There's a guy by the name of Audrey Assad, and he wrote this hymn, a song. And, and it's so interesting. I had this in my notes, and then I found out that Jacob had picked this to end the whole service with. So I'm, I'm pumped that he's going to end with this. But he wrote this. You know, what do you run toward? What do you run from? And so... Um, Audrey wrote this. He said, one of, the, one of the verses in the song is, riches I heed not. In other words, he's saying, this isn't something that's good to run toward. Riches I heed not, nor man's praise. Not just praise, but man's empty praise. Thou, you, Lord, are mine inheritance now and always. Thou and thou only are first in my heart, high King of heaven. My treasure, thou 
art. So where are we in answering our question? The question is, will God take back offending children? And I think what we discover in chapters 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12 is that God will accept the last remnant of a wayward life, the leftover scraps of a broken existence. If he or she, chapter 8, we went back, you would see there's a commitment to the Word of God. 9 and 10, there is confession and restoration, repentance, rededication of themselves to the Lord in faith and all humility. Or in other words, if we were to tap in on what Jesus said, he or she is willing to die to self and bear much fruit. Now, what would that look like if we were going to look through the Bible? I would say it would look like this. If, on the one hand, you are Samson, and if you're blinded, and if you're humiliated, and if you're strapped to a Philistine grinding stone, and the Philistines are jeering at you, and you cry to God for one last unction from his spirit to empower you so that you might die with your enemies. God will hear your prayer. Or if you're David, and when you were supposed to be at battle, instead you stayed home and you lusted and you committed adultery, murder, and you impregnated another man's wife, and when you are confronted by the prophet, you admit, Lord, I have sinned. If you make that confession, that repentance, then the Lord might please, after the death of that one child, your next child of that same woman, he might be pleased to call that son, nickname that son, Jedediah, beloved of God. Or if you're the prodigal son and you cry to your father, finally, after running away, make me father like one of your hired servants, then you too will hear the father say, this son of mine, not hired servant, this son of mine was lost, but now he's found. Or you might be like Simon Peter, and you deny Jesus three times, and you weep bitterly. And then when you went out fishing in a boat, and your brother John says, there he is, you put on your clothes, and you jump in the water to follow him. Then he turns to you and says, feed my sheep. I don't care where you are. God will have you back if you're willing to come. You know, just like at the end of chapter 8, Nehemiah could have closed in prayer, sent everybody home. I mean, we could get to this point right here. We could close in prayer, send everybody home. You're going to feel real good. But Nehemiah just wasn't your average preacher. Nehemiah just kept, you know, wasn't good enough to say, okay, let's just have a wonderful celebration. We're committing to the word. He said, no, no, I, I want confession. I want... Uh, repentance, 
And now he comes to this point, he could just say, let's all go home. And Nehemiah says, no, brokenness is not enough. He says, there has to be faithfulness on top of it. And so this is what he drives for us as well. There has to not only be brokenness, there must be faithfulness. Um, I know many of you probably were at Callie and Jesse's wedding just a few days ago, and uh, there were some other weddings that took place over the last few weeks. And, you know, I mean, honestly, it's a, if it's a Christian wedding, they're pretty much all the same. You know, do you commit? You, you know, I commit. You know, will you, will you love this person as Christ loves the church? Yes, I certainly will. Will you respect them? Will you honor their leadership? You know, blah, 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 you know, and all this stuff. Will you do all that stuff until you're dead? Yep, we'll, we'll do it. And, uh, and, you know, then there's the candle and the rings and the songs and the parading and then all the food. That's a wedding. But the truth is, Nehemiah doesn't want them to get away with it, just like a lot of times we get, we say all those commitments, we go through all that rigmarole. And uh, the truth is, the next week, Guys, you're struggling. You're struggling. And, and ladies, you are really struggling. Do I really respect this guy? and want to follow after his leadership. Are you kidding me? I'm really hurting here, Lord. And the guy's really hurting. You know, when he hears me say, are you willing to love this woman as Christ loves the church and, and give your life for her? You know what he's picturing in his mind? Yeah. I'm going to do it. If, if, if a guy comes up to the front door with a gun and he says, look, guy, it's either you or your wife, I'm going to jump in front of that gun. No questions. And I don't, I don't doubt it. You'll take a bullet instead of your wife. I mean, for you, loving your wife is putting your life on the line. But I'll guarantee you I'll put money on it. I'd put money there instead of the stock market. I'd put money there instead of real estate. That that probably will never happen to you. Nobody will ever come to the, your front door with a gun and say it's either you or your wife. But where it does make a difference is, are you really willing to lay your life down for your wife? Are you really willing to help her when she needs help? Are you really willing to support her where she needs support? Or are you willing to change those diapers when they need to be changed? Are you willing to stay home when you could go off with your buddies to stay home? Because look, she's been busy all week too. She's been working hard all week too. She needs help with the kids too. Will you put the kids to bed? Will you bathe the kids? That's the kind of faithfulness Nehemiah is driving toward. And so Nehemiah says, look, faithfulness has got to be expressed in at least three areas. Priorities, focus, and consistency. When it comes to the priorities, in, in verse 44, he talks about the, he was appointed men over the storerooms, contributions, first fruits, tithes, etc. Uh, it's, it's, not, it's not faithfulness, will you come to another church meeting? 
That's not the kind of faithfulness. He, he wants where the rubber is meeting the road. Faithfulness isn't displayed on how many church meetings you attend in a week or how many Bible studies you attend in a week or, or how high you raise your hands or how loud you sing. You know, he's saying, no, the kind of faithfulness I'm talking about is if you are married. Ladies, are you really honoring and respecting your husbands. And guys, are you really taking, are you preferencing your wife's needs over your needs? Don't talk to me about how many times you come to church. Tell me though. I would love to hear how you really are loving your wives, how you're loving your kids and spending time with your kids, discipling your kids. Tell me about how many meetings you come to. That's the faithfulness I want to hear about. I, I want to hear about the kind of faithfulness, not that you show up to something, but are, are you up at 6 o'clock reading your Bible and praying? That's the kind of faithfulness Nehemiah is talking about the priorities of everyday life. Nehemiah holds their feet to the fire. He says, look, unless you're giving your first, unless you're giving your best, unless you're giving off the top, he's saying to the people there, all this, all this recommitment stuff is just useless. Don't just try it again. You've got to try it anew. It's, it's got to be different. See, I've never seen a victorious Christian life lived by a person who hasn't mastered the priorities of life. Just the individual priorities of life. Time in the Word, time in prayer, time in fellowship, which, which is so critical. Time in worship, of course. But time with your kids Time to help them and honor them or grandkids, whatever the case might be in your life. Listen, if he hasn't mastered your private life, you're kidding yourself. So this is what Nehemiah drives to. He could have closed in prayer twice already, but he doesn't let him get by with that. So not just faithfulness is revealed not only in the priorities of life, but in the focus of life too. And he goes back in verse 45, 46, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. So Nehemiah says, look, we need to do this not only because David did it, because we've got to position God as supreme. God is supreme. God is overall, just like in David's life. God was supreme and God was overall. See, the revealed will of God gives me focus. It, it directs my life. And it's the word of God that gives me a foundation for the rest of my life. So faithfulness is, manifests itself in your priorities. It manifests itself in your focus. It manifests itself in consistency as well. You see in 45 to 47, all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for these singers, gatekeepers, etc. You just see a consistency in life. And this is what they were so bad at before. It was just cycle after cycle after 
hundred years of the cycle of inconsistency. He says, let's don't try it again. We've got to try it anew. Things have got to be different this time. We have to live consistently in the fear of God. And unfortunately, I mean, too many believers get caught up in trying to survive from emotional jerk to emotional jerk. And Nehemiah is just saying, look, it just isn't going to happen that way. Life will be so frustrating to you if you try and live that way. So we've... The consistency certainly doesn't mean that we don't change. Consistency doesn't mean that we're not progressive. Nehemiah did things very differently than they had done in the past. I mean, he was very strategic in the way that he he got this done in 52 days. uh, He was extremely strategic. So we can be very progressive missionally when it comes to things, but there are other areas spiritually in terms of morality where God has spoken that we return to the word of God and we maintain consistency with the word of God. We are unchanging and responsive and obedient in areas where God clearly uh, speaks. Um, you know, so we are very progressive in certain areas. As a church, we're progressive in certain areas. Uh, the way we do missions now is very different from the way a church might do missions a hundred years ago. You've heard of the Wednesday night service. You know why they had a Wednesday night service? Anybody know why Wednesday night services came became popular a hundred years ago or so? It's because of the invention of the light bulb. And the the first building in a in a community to get lights was the church. So they were very strategic. They said, you know what let's do? Let's turn the lights on at night. Let's do it on a Wednesday night. All the people will come to see the light bulbs and we'll preach an evangelistic sermon to them. They were strategic. So we can be very progressive. We don't dress the way people dressed 100 years ago. People today, it's interesting, the higher up the socioeconomic scale, you dress down for church, the lower down the socioeconomic scale you go, you dress up for church. I mean, people just dress differently. That's okay. God hasn't spoken there. I'll just put it another way. Larry Greiner was in the first service, so it made me think of a guy who farms and all that stuff. I thought, well, we have a whole lot better sickles than Ruth had right now. Just because Ruth used a sickle, we don't use a sickle. We're progressive. We use tractors and combines and all that stuff. But you can't improve on Ruth. That's unchanging. We want to be like Ruth, but we're not going to use sickles. We have a Lloyd Bender. We have a whole lot better fishing techniques than Peter had nets. I mean, we're not going to use the nets Peter used. But you can't improve on Peter. I, I would much rather, if I, if I had to go camping, if somebody twisted my arm and I had to go camping, I would much rather sleep in an airstream than one of Paul's tents. But I guarantee you, you can't improve on Paul. And if I had somebody to build a house, I would certainly want my carpenter to use tools other than what Jesus had, a hammer and a saw, but you can't improve on Jesus, that's for sure. 
So there are some areas where we are progressive in terms of addressing the winds of culture with creation, uh, with creative missional opportunities, but on the other hand, there are those areas of spirituality and morality where we need to repent and reform and return to God and get back to the book. So the question is, does God take back offending children? And what we find is God requires a return to the word. He requires uh, confession and repentance and brokenness, which yields its way into dedication, celebration, consecration, and adoration. And then you see a people that God loves and remembers. I want to end just by giving you quickly uh, a glimpse at all the names. Not just the names in Nehemiah. You see three different lists of names here. You see, uh, you see lists of names throughout the entire Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. Uh, so my appeal to you is not to struggle pronouncing each, each name, but I want you to appreciate why they're there. Uh, and here, chapter 11, 11, 1 to 12, 26, you see all these names of the Jews, the priests, the Levites, who left Persia, etc. And the best way to explain it is to give you an illustration. I'm sure many of you in your travels, you have visited um, cemeteries, battlefields, memorials, and you have seen thousands of faceless names. One of my favorite places was the Alamo, and you go into the Alamo, and you go into that, you go into that chapel, and you'll see hundreds of names, most Scots-Irish names, um, in subscribed in, into brass. And uh, you go to other battlefields, you'll see thousands, thousands of faceless names, and uh, they are faceless, but they are not meaningless. I dare say, two generations after these people died. They would just be names and nobody would have a clue who they were, the names in Nehemiah. If you go to the Vietnam War Memorial in Washington, D.C., which was built in 1982, uh, it was to honor the 58,000 men and women uh, who lost their lives fighting uh, in Vietnam, paying the ultimate sacrifice. These men and women met the enemy head on uh, they, they and people like them are the reason that we enjoy our freedom and experience the blessings that we do in this country. You see, my freedoms are not free. They are very, very costly. My freedoms were purchased with the increment of blood. Yes, those names that you see on that black stone in Washington, D.C., are faceless, but they are not meaningless. When it opened up in 1982, I'll never forget the pictures, the pictures just like you see up here of mothers, fathers, sons and daughters, husbands and wives, not just viewing these names going, oh, look at all the names. They are caressing the names, faceless names, but not meaningless names. 
1982 when it opened, one of the most vivid memories that I have in my mind was when a young mother and her little child walked up to the name of her husband that lost his life. She pressed her face up against that name with tears rolling down her cheeks. Those names are not meaningless names. Those are names of somebody's son, somebody's daughter, somebody's husband, somebody's wife, somebody's grandkid. These names, as we read through them and sometimes laugh as we try and pronounce them, and that's okay. They're hard to pronounce. They are priceless names to God. So the next time you run across a list of names in the Bible, I want you to think they might be meaningless to you, they might be faceless to you, but they are priceless and they are precious to God. And I don't know if you know it right now, but God is writing another book with more names. Be a long list of names. And for most of us, if we were to look at the book, we would say, huh, faceless names, but not meaningless to God. They're written in the Lamb's book of life, purchased by blood. They're, the names that are in that book are not there because they're free. Those names in that book are there because of the ultimate sacrifice, the perfect Lamb of God died on a cross for you and for me so that, yes, even though we turn our back on God time after time after time, if we put our faith and our trust in this ultimate sacrifice, Jesus. We become priceless to him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Let's all stand together. We'll close in prayer. And then we're going to close, close with a song. Oh, Lord, when I think of the gospel and think of what, what must it take for us to be restored, it takes the resolve, it takes the commitment, it takes the expression of blood from the perfect sacrifice, the Lord Jesus, to die in our place on a cross so that we, when offered this free gift, because there is nothing we can do to earn it, nothing we can do to deserve it. Even if we have sinned against you a million times over and over and over, when we come to the cross, there's nothing to the cross that we can bring. It's simply to the cross that we can cling. And we cling in a brokenness that leads to not only a renewed um, dependence, an appreciation for the word of God, but confession where we dedicate and celebrate and purify, consecrate and adore you 
and thereby we then receive you in faith. And as we have received you, so walk we in him, in faithfulness. It's not riches that we heed. It's not man's empty praise. You are our inheritance now and always. You are the one who is first in our heart. You are the high king of heaven. You are our treasure. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this teaching from Parkview Church. We pray that you are blessed by God's word. For additional teaching, resources, podcasts, as well as information on who we are and our upcoming events, please visit our website at www.parkviewchurch.org.